0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. It's rude to overhear conversations to eavesdrop, but sometimes it's hard not to, and if you can turn them into sermon illustrations, it's probably fine. There's a kind of conversation I overhear in coffee shops, and and it it fascinates me. It's when I overhear people talking about the faith of someone else, some friend of theirs. You'll, You'll hear them talking about some third party who's not present, and they'll say, oh, he's very religious, or oh, she's very spiritual. When I hear those things, I forget that eavesdropping is rude, and I just kind of tune in and listen because I want to know what people mean when they say stuff like that. Like, what do they mean when they say he's very religious? What do they mean when they say that she's very spiritual? Well, if you eavesdrop enough to the way people talk about these things, um, you'll find That generally, people who are regarded by the world as very religious, very spiritual, fall into one of two categories. They're either moralists or mystics. They're either moralists or they're mystics. Now, moralists, we've talked about a lot in going through Romans, but moralists are basically people who are on the path of virtue. Right? They want God to be pleased with them. They want to understand uh, truth and reality. And the way to do that is by embracing the path of virtue. Now, When we say that, you may think of Pharisees, but there are a lot of people on the path of virtue. Uh, Greek philosophy is all about embracing the life of virtue. Right? if you want to be a good Stoic, you're going to be a virtuous person. Right? So moralists. And then on the other hand, you've got mystics, who are not so concerned about being virtuous. They're on a path that you might think of as a path to enlightenment, to gaining understanding and, uh, and, and wisdom in that way. Moralists and mystics, they don't always get along. They don't always care about what the other cares about. moralists don't think much of mystics, because mystics don't think much of, of moralism. Right? Mystics are more concerned about being enlightened, whereas moralists are more concerned about being good people. But they both have one thing in common, which is the shared assumption that the distance between where they're at and virtue, or where they're at in enlightenment, that distance is far. That there is a long journey that is necessary in order to get to that destination. They both assume that the distance to God is far. And there's some reason to think this. They're they're not wrong in this instinct. The distance between God and human beings, according to the Westminster Confession, chapter 7, section 1, is incalculable. There is so much distance between God and human beings that it could not possibly be crossed. That's how far That distance goes. But of course, that's not good news for moralists or for mystics. The Westminster Divines acknowledge the path is is far, the distance is great. In fact, they go further and say, it's so great that you cannot possibly reach the other ends. There is no way for a moralist to reach true virtue. There's no way for a mystic to reach true enlightenment. There's no possible way except for one. What if God were to close the distance from his end? The only hope that we have of reaching God is for God to close the distance from his end. And that's what he's done. And that means that salvation is closer than you think. That the path that you must travel is not as far as we've been led to believe. We're going to see three things in the text this morning. We're going to see that God closes the distance, and because God closes the distance, salvation is closer than you think. We're going to see that because Christ is the goal or the telos of the law, you don't just get the commandments, but you also get their fulfillment. And finally, we'll see that this new reality means that there is no distance to the cross. So let's turn to Romans 10 and see what Paul has to say. Romans 10, let's take a look at the first four verses. Remember, he's speaking about his concern for Israel, for his brothers and sisters in the flesh, and the fact that Israel as a nation seems to be rejecting the Messiah. He writes these words, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, the first thing to note there is that Paul acknowledges their zeal, right? He sees that these are people who are striving for virtue. They're not missing out on God because they don't want to find him. They do. They're trying to be righteous, right? There's a zeal that they possess, but, but uh, it's incomplete. Zeal is good, in other words. Zeal is admirable, but the kind of zeal that matters is zeal according to knowledge. We're surrounded by so much lack of zeal, so much insincerity that we tend to admire zeal wherever we find it. We may run into people who believe the exact opposite of what we believe, who would deny every truth that we hold dear and vice versa, but we see how fervently they believe what they believe, and and we admire it. And Paul acknowledges that zeal. But he also points out zeal alone is not enough, that in some ways it's the zeal that has misled them. There's a danger in their ignorance, despite the fact that we can admire their sincerity. And the danger in their ignorance is a danger to themselves. They were ignorant of God's plan to save believers by giving them Christ's righteousness. And as a result, in their zeal, they came up with their own plan to pursue righteousness their own way. Because they didn't understand what God was doing, they came up with their own way of getting to that destination. And unfortunately it led them astray because coming up with their own way of attaining righteousness was actually a form of rebellion, which is a strange thing to realize that that in trying to be pious, in trying to be religious, they were actually guilty of rebellion in what sense? In the sense that they rejected the Messiah, they rejected Christ who they should have revered. Paul says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. Now, when you hear that, you may be thinking in terms of uh, like end as in all done, but end here is, is a little bit different. This is more, in English, it's more like when we ask in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? We don't mean like man's final day. We mean his purpose, the goal. The, the Greek word here for end is telos. And that's a word that we still occasionally in English will use to talk about the goal or the purpose of something, or to put it another way, the fulfillment. When this thing reaches its telos, its end, it will be fulfilled, it will be complete. Christ is the fulfillment of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. That idea of Christ as the telos or Christ as the fulfillment of the law becomes really important as we keep going. So file that away. Christ is the fulfillment of the law for everyone who believes. But what does that mean? Let's keep reading. So in verse 5, he does what he's been doing for chapters now. He goes back to the Old Testament. You may be surprised by this. I'm actually surprised preaching through the book of Romans how much it relies on the Old Testament to make its case. And here, Paul goes back to the life of Moses in order to make his case. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, you should have that tingly sensation when you get to the end of that passage, because you're, you're hearing a verse that you've heard many times before. You're getting one of those sound bites from the book of Romans that we often use in a different context. Than it was originally written verse nine. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But what is all that stuff that comes before it about these little voices talking about ascending to heaven and descending to the abyss and, and all that, what is going on there? Well, to understand that you have to go back and look at the old Testament passage That is being referred to. And it's in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And this is no random passage in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 30 is a key text. This is Moses giving a farewell address to the people of Israel. This is the passage where he entreats them to choose life. This is the passage that Paul is going back and quoting. If you turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 30. We'll pick up in verse 11, Moses says, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us to bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you will say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So you can see when Paul says these things in Romans 10, he's paraphrasing what Moses says here. And Moses is speaking here about the nearness of what? The nearness of the commandment. The commandment is near. So picture the two tablets That Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments written upon them. He brings them up from the heights. He brings them down to the people. These are the commandments that he's now entreating them to obey, keep these commandments. And they could make excuses. Who can know the will of God? There's so much distance between man and God. Who can know what God expects from us? Where must we go? What spiritual quest to the ends of the earth must we undertake in order to understand? And Moses says, no, no. He brought them down to you. They're here. You don't need to travel around the world. You don't need to go up to heaven to look for them. God brought them down. I carried them. They're here. They're not just here written on stone, but the commandments are in your mouth, he says. They're on your lips, and they're in your heart. There's no distance involved because God has closed the distance. God has brought them to you, which is all well and good. But when you read that passage in Deuteronomy, Moses says some other stuff, He says about these commandments, uh, the commandment is not too hard for you. He insists you can do it. It is not too hard for you and you can do it. But when you think about the whole history of Israel from that moment forward, doesn't it seem like a testimony to the fact that it is too hard for us and we cannot do it? It almost seems like Moses is being a little too optimistic when he speaks these words that he is exaggerating the difficulty of what he's talking about. Because in reality, it is way too hard to keep the commandment and we cannot do it. Let's keep going and see what Moses has to say. This is Deuteronomy 30, picking up in verse 15. Moses says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land That the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. If you need a label for the kind of scene this is, what's happening in Deuteronomy 30, it's covenant renewal. The people of Israel are being reminded of their covenant with God. When Moses calls heaven and earth to witness against them, this is how covenants work. The covenant relationship is testified to by witnesses. There are blessings to those who fulfill its obligations and curses to those who break covenant. That's the way covenants work. But it's important to keep in mind that even here, as Moses is talking about keeping the commandment, chronologically, this is happening not before Israel's deliverance, but after. So what, Moses is doing here, he's not giving, like, like uh, he's not instituting moralism as a religion. But right? he's not saying, if you keep the commandments, you will be delivered from Egypt. You've already been delivered from Egypt, and in gratitude, keep the commandments. That's a little bit different. Obedience flows from deliverance. Obedience doesn't cause deliverance. For those who choose life by keeping God's commands, there's blessing but for those who choose death by turning away from him, by refusing to love him, there's judgment. Okay, Okay. well, that sounds like something a Pharisee would say. That sounds like something that, that, that the people that, that Paul is criticizing would have no problem with. But Paul would say, actually, you're missing something. When you read Deuteronomy 30, you're leaving something out. Or to be more precise, you're leaving someone out. Because Moses doesn't just say obey. Moses says love. Moses says love. The context, the air that obedience breathes in is the air of love and worship. All of this takes place, Moses says, by loving the Lord your God. By worshiping him, hearing him, serving him, that gives life. Moses isn't just calling us to obedience, in other words. He's calling us to worship obedience, to loving obedience, calling us to uh, union with our deliverer, which is something more. And that's what brings us back to Paul's words about Christ being the telos, or the goal of the law for righteousness. Because what, what's happening here is Paul is saying what you've missed in Deuteronomy 30 is Christ. And Paul, in reading that passage, reveals Christ to you, shows you where Christ is there. But Romans 10 is actually essential because it's showing us how Christian the Mosaic covenant is, which we're accustomed to thinking of as, as very much like a covenant of works, but it's not. The Mosaic covenant is a covenant of grace, as Paul demonstrates to us. Yeah, it's true. The commandment, in the sense of the tablets, was sent down from Sinai, but that's not really what's going on in Deuteronomy 30, as Romans 10 illustrates. The commandment is closer than you think, but there's more than just the commandment that is on our lips and is in our hearts. Because who has been sent down to us? Christ. Not just the tablets, but Christ himself has been sent down to us as the fulfiller of the law for us. So it's not just the commandment that is closer than you realize. It is the fulfillment of the commandment that is closer. It is the fulfillment that comes in Christ. So not only have we received the law, from God, but we've also received the fulfillment of the law from him as well. So the command comes to us not as an impossible burden that is only intended to condemn us and make us feel our guilt. The law actually comes down to us already fulfilled in Christ. It is not hard. You can do it in Christ, in Christ When you see that it is Christ that is being spoken of here, it all begins to make sense. Moses says, and Paul quotes him, the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And we may think in a justification by faith alone context, that what Moses is saying is false. That that's not how it works. But actually that is how it works. That is how it works. The person who does the commandments shall live by him and no one will have life apart from keeping those commandments. Well, how is it possible for us who have not and cannot keep those commandments to have life? Christ has kept them for us. Christ is the person who does the commandments and has life, and we have life in him. When we confess and believe in Christ, then all that he does and all that he has done becomes ours. Christ is the telos. Christ is the goal, the fulfillment of the law. And if we are in Christ, then the law has been fulfilled on our behalf. In Matthew 17, in the story of the transfiguration that we heard earlier, there is an amazing thing that happens, that takes place, that... uh, would be easy to pass over. When we think about the transfiguration, we think about the shining, the glory, the the change that takes place in Christ. But it's also interesting who meets with Christ, that it's Moses and Elijah who meet with him. As shorthand, if you were living in Jesus's day and you wanted to refer to the Old Testament, you didn't call it the Old Testament because everybody would say, well, what's the New Testament? Hold on, we're, we're getting one out shortly. What they referred to the Old Testament as is the law and the prophets. So when you hear people in the New Testament talk about the law and the prophets, they're basically referring to the Old Testament. Moses is the the, the mediator of that Mosaic covenant. He's the guy that brought the tablets down. Moses wrote the Torah. He wrote the law. It's referred to as the law of Moses even though it is, of course, the law of God. So Moses represents the law. Elijah, although he wasn't a writing prophet, is one of the greatest acting prophets who ever lived. Nobody had a biography quite like Elijah's. And so Moses and Elijah meeting with Christ at the transfiguration, if you're wondering, like, what does that mean? What does it signify? What it signifies is the whole of the Old Testament coming together to meet with the fulfiller of the Old Testament, Christ. And you got to know, on that day, Moses wasn't sitting there as they talked together saying to Jesus, man, I'm glad you showed up because my plan didn't work. I thought it was all going to be works righteousness. And it turns out I was totally wrong. It's good thing God had a plan B. No. No. Moses is there to celebrate because Christ is the fulfillment of what Moses spoke. When Moses spoke those covenant words in Deuteronomy 30, although at the moment he spoke them, he could have had no clue, no idea of the truth of the words that he was speaking. He was preaching Christ to the congregation. But Paul had to come along in Romans 10 and explain how that was. So there is a fulfillment that takes place at the transfiguration, and it's a signal that the world has changed. For the ones who witnessed Jesus' transfiguration and for all those who came after, they realized reality as we knew it has now been altered. Let's go back to Paul. In verse 9, he writes, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The confession on your lips flows from the believing and justified heart, which means that salvation is as simple as trusting in Christ. There is no quest. There is no distance. There is no ground to cover. It is as simple as faith. Paul quotes once again from Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, reminding us that no one who believes in Christ will miss out. No one, regardless of who they are. It is as simple as having faith. Anyone who has faith is in Christ. Which means that the distinctions that used to keep us apart, the distance that used to divide us has been torn down. It's no longer there. In Christ, all that distance has been eaten up. There is one God, one Lord of all. And everyone who calls on him receives his riches no matter who they are. The walls that used to divide us have been torn down by grace. And God has has pulled people from every tribe, kindred, and language to form a household for himself. A house of unity. And then finally, in verse 13, we get one more quote, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, which sounds like it might be just kind of rephrasing that earlier quote from Isaiah, but it isn't. Those words come from the prophet Joel. And if you go back to Joel chapter two, and you look at the context of these words, it's kind of interesting. Because these words of Joel, that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, come immediately after the prophecy that is quoted at Pentecost. If you remember when there was that outpouring of the spirit at Pentecost, Paul or sorry Peter looks at that and says, this fulfills what the prophet Joel testified. He said, the spirit would be poured out. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. That's being made true. It is being fulfilled on this day. When you look back at that, this quotation comes immediately afterwards. So it's all kind of together with that idea, the new world that the spirit has created, this new world of grace that has torn down all of the dividing walls, this new reality in which Jesus has come to us. We didn't go to him. He came to us. He closed the distance between us. He unconfused the confusion. He made all these different people into one family. The reason that people are constantly getting the gospel wrong is that like the moralists and like the mystics, they assume that the distance must be great and that the good news of the gospel is there's an exciting new way to cross the distance. We have yet another plan that will get us eventually into the presence of God. But the good news is not that some people, if they're good enough or spiritual enough, might be able to reach God. The good news is that God reached down to us. So you don't have to look up in the sky and wonder, is he up there? Because Jesus is here. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. There is no distance that separates us from the cross. It is here. It is here. The cross means that God is here. The cross means that the work is done and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He calls us all to kneel before the cross. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org.